My guest today is David Blackman. I'm a, uh, an old oil and gas guy. I spent 42 years in the oil and gas industry. Uh, I'm semi-retired now. I write for Forbes.com, The Daily Caller, Petroleum Economist, uh, World Oil Magazine, and other platforms about energy, and uh, host my own podcast called The Energy Question with David Blackman, and co-host one called uh, The Energy Transition Podcast with three other folks who are very knowledgeable in the field as well. All right. And you're also active on Twitter and Substack, right? Oh, yes. Very active on and LinkedIn as well. Um, and uh, my background is is public policy. I, I was in public policy while I was in the industry at the state and federal level. And uh, most of my, my writing really is centers on the uh, intersection between policy and energy and uh well, it's intersecting a lot these days. And your Twitter handle is Energy Absurdity, right? I'll put that in. Yes, the energy notes. Absurdity, right. yes. And do you want to share some Energy Absurdities with us here? Sure. I do a, an Energy Absurdity of the day. I don't do it every day of the week, but typically four or five times a week. And, uh, I, you know, there's so many absurd things happening in the in the energy space these days as we go through this energy transition, which... I frankly think is uh, defies the laws of thermodynamics and physics and supply and demand. And so I try to pick out one most days that, uh, you know, I think is truly absurd. And I just went through the last 30 days and picked out 10 of them here. Perfect. Uh, my first one is from June 3rd. I think this is the top one of the last month. The Irish government is planning to slaughter 200,000 elderly cows uh, in order to reduce its methane emissions to meet its climate goals, uh, you know, which is just extraordinary to me. We're going to have a mass slaughter of, I mean, it's like like going into the nursing homes and killing human beings in nursing homes, right? These are cattle whose teeth have worn down and they're on the downside of their lives anyway. And the Irish government apparently thinks it's just per perfectly fine to slaughter 200,000 of them to reduce carbon emissions methane emissions. So are you finding out at all? Is there any public feedback about this? Are people giving it a big thumbs up? This is going to prevent I, that I haven't okay. seen any yet. You know, this is a plan that's under consideration. Uh, whether it's approved or not, to me, doesn't really matter, okay? It's the fact that a government, a government body in, in an elected democracy even bothers to consider something like that as a valid plan to reduce emissions. Uh, it's just just amazing to me, and it just points out how um, absurd we, we've become in the energy space. I think it's the, the prime example I've had in the last month. The next one is from June 10th, just a couple of days ago. Vineyard Wind Project, the offshore wind project offshore uh, the uh, New England coast, is kicking off this week construction of this enormous wind project and they've been awarded by the federal government 21 permits annually to take whales, including right whales, uh, which is an endangered species. And this, this big offshore wind project is, is going to be sited right in the right whales breeding grounds and in migration corridors for other species of whales, like the gray whales. And so, you know, the Vineyard Wind gets to take 21 of these whales every year as long as, as it's in operation, which is 
fairly amazing, and, and it has hundreds of permits to take other marine mammals and seabirds, uh, thousands of seabirds that these windmills can slaughter with impunity. And the environmental community is silent on this. It's, it's really, really amazing to me. No, I was just listening to uh, your podcast today with Meredith Angwin. I think yeah. she said there may be as few as 400 right whales left. Is that yes, possible? Yes, I mean, it's a really, truly endangered species. And it's not some insect somewhere. It's whales. It's, it's one of the most prominent mammalian species on Earth. And, and these whales are called the right whale, as Meredith pointed out, because when they were being you know, hunted by fishermen back in the day, whale fishermen, uh, they were the right whale to take because they were easier to catch. Uh, when you killed them with, with your big harpoons, they floated on the surface of the water rather than sinking, so they were much easier to recover and bring onto the ship. So that's why they're called right whales in the first place, and they were almost hunted to extinction back then in the 19th century. And, and fortunately... Fortunately, we discovered oil and saved the right whales from, from pure extinction because prior to the discovery of oil, we were using whale oil as lighting in most homes in the United States and, and around the world. And uh, so the discovery of oil took the pressure off the whale populations. Now, here comes a wind project that's going to basically start killing them again. And no one seems to care. So, um, do you know the mechanism by which the wind power can kill the whales? Is it because they're blasting there and that, that does something to the whales well, or what? Apparently, during the seismic, yeah, they, they ran seismic surveys to, to uh, explore for the right places to put down their, their, uh, the, the foundations for the turbines. Uh, in the exploratory phase, uh, there is concern that the noise from the wind uh, turbines is going to disrupt the whales' communications, and that's why they applied for the permits in the first place. Uh, so, I mean, the fact that I mean, the, the, the national NOAA doesn't just award permits of its own volition, they have to be applied for. So there is obviously concern by the developers of Vineyard Wind that their project is going to harm the whale population, and that's why they applied for these permits. Uh, onshore, you know, we've had... Uh, you know, the spectacle of, of onshore projects in the Rocky Mountain states applying for permits to take bald eagles every year and being awarded those permits to take bald eagles and golden eagles and all manner of bird and bat species because um, they know that these birds and bats are going to run into their turbines and be killed by them. And, um, you know, again, uh, none of the, it's, it's extraordinary to me that Greenpeace isn't out there protesting this, and none of the endangered species groups or the Sierra Club or the NRDC is, is protesting the awarding of these permits to kill these animals. And, uh, you know, the wind industry right now is the second largest killer of birds on planet Earth. The only thing that kills more birds every year is power lines because, you know, being electrocuted from landing on power lines. And... Uh, Again, I, it, it's just one of the biggest uh, examples of rank hypocrisy that, that I've seen, to be honest about it. So I have another question. Uh, is that that they can kill 21 whales uh, in total or just per year? Or what happens if that's, they go that's, over that? That's the number you can take without being fined for it and penalized for it. 
Now, if you didn't have the permits and you knew your, your project was going likely to cause damage to the well populations, you didn't apply for the permits, there are civil penalties and, and also potentially even criminal penalties if you knew one, one uh, onshore producer was prosecuted by the government under criminal penalties uh, last year uh, because they were taking endangered bird species that they knew in advance their project would impact and didn't apply for the permits. So you apply for the permits if you think there's a possibility your operations are going to end up taking these mammals. And uh, it's for protection of the company and, uh, and also to indemnify you against uh, uh, criminal prosecution, you know, if, if it turns out you are killing the mammals. So if a right whale happens to wash up uh, near a wind project, does somebody have to prove whether the wind turbine killed yes. it? Or? Yeah, okay. you'd have to be able to produce, prove a connection. And, uh, you know, that, that I would suspect would be difficult to do. Uh, you know, the other way that uh, they could be impacted, there's going to be a lot of ship traffic uh, to and from the turbines uh, from onshore. And, and the other way that the whales could be impacted is, uh, you know, running into the ships, the propellers uh, in that way. And, uh, you know, in which case the project would be liable uh, potentially for the taking of that mammal. So do you happen to know if any wind projects have run into trouble because they've chopped up too many large raptors and gotten... Uh, I, I don't know if that's if that's happened in Europe or not. Oh, wait, uh, you're talking about onshore? Onshore, maybe Altamont. I don't know. You might know a lot more uh, than I do. Altamont, I don't know. There was, and uh, I'm sorry, I didn't uh, go back and look it up. There was one wind project in uh, operator in Wyoming last year that uh, was penalized millions of dollars in fines. Uh, it had had criminal charges brought against it because it failed to apply for the proper permits to take raptors and, and other uh, uh, bird species. And and because of that, they had been prosecuted by the government and ended up paying pretty massive fines as a result. Okay. And then for like uh, hydrocarbon projects, they don't hand out any permits, do they, for free uh, yeah. killing of animals or do they? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, it's it's through the application for the permits and, and you know, you're either awarded or you're not. And, uh, and this has been, you know, this has been enforced for decades with the oil and gas industry, particularly in the Gulf of Mexico, offshore Alaska. You know, you you, you know if your project has the potential for taking these kinds of marine mammals that are protected under this law. And uh, so, yeah, companies are pretty careful to apply for the, the the proper number of take permits that they think they could impact. And, uh, you know, it's it's. It's the, the right way to regulate it. It's the right way to protect the company is, is to obtain those permits. Okay, very good. Uh, June 8th, Bloomberg reports that the electric vehicle boom could force China, force China to burn more coal. And this was a story that Bloomberg ran. That was a headline, by the way. Uh, PV boom could force China to burn more dirty coal. Well, no one has to force China to burn more coal. China is opening two new coal plants every week. They are building, it's been investing billions and billions of dollars in new coal plants. It's not, you know, the EV boom forcing them to do it. I just thought that was an absurd headline and it kind of made me laugh. Um, 
So yeah, Tom Friedman has said uh, we should look towards green China as the leader. We should do what they're doing. Yeah. They're not uh, building uh, EVs using wind and solar power, right? Because you can't, no, it's not, well, not possible. Obviously not. Right. And uh, yeah, yeah, Jennifer Granholm also uh, talked about just uh, a couple of months ago at a conference said, we have a lot to learn from China uh, about energy. And uh, I'm, I'm wondering exactly what that is other than, you know, how to build coal plants, because that's what China is mainly doing. Now, China is also leading the world in building new solar and wind capacity as well. They're investing billions and billions of dollars in it, but it's not even enough to account for the growth in the consumption of electricity that, that China, China is experiencing right now due to population growth and economic growth. And, and Frankly, we're seeing the same thing in the United States. Uh, we have rapidly growing wind and solar industries in this country, but but the amount that they're actually capable of generating, you have this nameplate capacity on the, all these projects, but the amount they're actually generating is not even accounting for the percentage of growth in consumption each year. And um, so, you know, China is doing what China needs to do to ensure its own energy security. And, and where China's concerned, that means building a lot of new coal plants. And, and given that China is still classified uh, under these international climate treaties as a quote, developing nation, as is India, uh, China is able to do this. They don't have any climate commitments really, uh, net zero commitments until 2060, 10 years after most of the rest of the world ha has their own commitments. And uh, so, you know, they're just doing this with impunity and vastly offsetting any reductions in emissions we're achieving in the Western world. So I'm curious if you have a sense of, uh, they call these dirty coal plants. I think carbon dioxide is not a really a pollutant, so I would, I'd throw that part out. But in terms of real pollution, do you think the Chinese coal plants pollute a lot more than American coal plants or what's uh, happening now? They did until recently. The new ones that are being built, no, I'm told that they're they're being built to similar standards of what's being built in the United States and Europe. So, I mean, with the new ones, that's not really a big concern. Real pollution, like NOx and SOx, uh, you know, and other particulate matter that, that coal releases, they do have the, the modern scrubbers on them, and they're pretty clean technology compared to what used to be built. Uh, it's the number as much as anything, and, and it's, of course, the carbon emissions that uh, the climate community is obsessed about. I, you know, frankly, I, th I think the whole carbon dioxide uh, yeah. issue is also kind of a canard, and it's, it's really kind of amazing to me that we uh, consider plant food to be a pollutant in our, you know, under the Clean Air Act here in the United States. It's really extraordinary federal power grab that's enabling all sorts of of uh, irrational policies to be adopted in our country. I do remember reading a lot of stuff maybe 10 years ago or so about how there was a terrible pollution in the cities, some cities in Asia, and maybe an Asian brown cloud heading here towards the U.S. Is, uh, is there any truth to that anymore? Is it getting better over there? Was it ever? Uh, it's, it's improved to some extent, um, but, you know, they still have pretty, pretty bad air quality in China compared to the United States because you know, so many of those older coal plants are still operating, thousands of them. Here in the United States, most of the 
you know, 70s, 80s generation of coal plants have been retired now, either that or they've, you know, invested billions of dollars in scrubbing equipment to, to get the particulate matter out of the air. But China still has a lot of those older generation coal plants generating a lot of particulate matter that uh, really creates, you know, a lot of haze, daily haze and other air pollution that uh, issues that we just don't really experience in the United States anymore. Do you think it is generally true then that in U.S. cities that the air quality is is better than it was in the 70s? Oh, vastly yeah. better. I mean, it's been kind of bad in New York over yeah. the past week because of all the fires in, in Canada, but, uh, you know, that's a different thing. Right. Okay. Very good. Uh, let's see. On May 22nd, this is number four, anti-natural gas propaganda presented by Chevron. So I, I don't know. You probably get the same newsletter, Power Switch. I do not. Politico. In the evening, well, Politico puts out a an energy and environment focused newsletter called Power Switch uh, overnight every night, and and it's usually got you know quite a lot of decent information in it, but most of it is just simply anti oil and gas propaganda, which is what Politico really focuses on where energy is concerned. It's extraordinary to me that at least once a week I look at that newsletter and see that it's sponsored by Chevron. So someone in Chevron, one of the big major oil and gas companies, thinks it's a really good investment to, to invest thousands of dollars. I mean, this has got to be a pretty expensive sponsorship to sponsor this newsletter put out by a very liberal political organization, Politico. And I just, I just found that to be absurd, and uh, that was my absurdity for May 22nd. Um, and, and, of course, you know, all these companies make these decisions, and I hate second-guessing these folks, but uh, it just seems really odd to me. I'm just curious that um, some companies that produce hydrocarbons, they like propaganda against other hydrocarbons. Like, they, if they don't produce <laughs> coal, then they might uh, like anti-coal well, propaganda. Well, Chevron produces yeah. an awful lot of natural gas and, yeah. and oil. Uh, it wasn't coal. It was a natural gas story. So that, does, one of that the makes no producers. sense. Why yeah. would they do that? I don't know. Okay. I, it, it makes no sense to me. Uh, but right. a lot, a lot of things these companies do were, with communications don't make a lot of sense to me. All right. Uh, the previous day, May twenty-first, London's ultra-low emissions zone exempts carbon belching elites and their million-dollar cars. So, in the city of London, they've established what they've called in the center of the city had uh, the ULEZ, ultra-low emissions zone, where cars that that produce above a certain level of carbon emissions from their tailpipes are not allowed to drive into that center part of the city. And it supposedly helps the air quality, and that's great. But what they did when they implemented this thing was exempt certain very high-dollar brands of cars like Lamborghinis and Bentleys and Rolls Royces, whose emissions vastly exceed the threshold <laughs> that is supposed to be being enforced in the ULEZ. And of course, you know, what that has the effect of doing is making the people making the policies exempt from that particular fine uh, if they happen to violate the standard, right? Which is, is so typical, frankly, of, of policies that are being made by our elites and our society. And it's why I uh, make a habit of pointing out the fact that, that we have the very worst class of people possible making our energy policies for us. That was a, a really good example. 
Yeah, so I guess they're not worried about getting thrown out of office if uh, the <laughs> voters find this out, or I, I, I guess not. You know, and 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 frankly, you know, it's kind of amazing to me. Uh, they seem to be kind of exempt from getting thrown out of office over these things. I think largely because the news media barely reports any of this stuff. You have to go digging for things like this. That actually was a report, though, that was carried in the UK Guardian on the front page of the UK Guardian. So I think we should commend the Guardian for, for reporting that reality. So how about, I'm very curious in these areas, what about people who have real jobs that do actual stuff that they have to have stepladders and tools? Are they supposed to bring their stepladder and their tools onto the subway or carry them on their back or what? <laughs> I, I'm not sure. You know, I think certain um, contractors, workers, contractors, trucks, electricity trucks, mail trucks, things like that, are also exempt from that standard. It applies to personal passenger cars that don't meet the emission standard. And so, you know, an electrician or a plumber could come into the zone if they're in, an, you know, a company car, a company vehicle that's marked uh, for that purpose. Um, but the, the common ordinary worker that works for the government in central London, you know, has to take a bus or uh, I, I, I don't think they have light rail that goes through central London, but I'm not positive about that. So probably, I guess they have to ride the bus. But if you have a limo, then you can just take your limo. That's fine. You can take your yeah. limo. You can drive your Lamborghini or your, your Bentley. You just can't buy drive a Volkswagen if its emissions doesn't meet the threshold test. Is there any connection between these ULEZ? Is that the right acronym? ULEZ. Is yeah. that and 15-minute cities? Anything? Are they different? Probably. Well, I, you know, I'm sure that sort of thing will be incorporated into the 15-minute city planning, uh, as as mainly, I guess, the EU is is really the main central planner of those kinds of things right now, and the WEF, of course. Uh, yeah, I'm sure that'll be part of it to, to ensure. Again, it's all designed to force people out of personal automobiles and onto mass transit, if if the mass transit ever really exists. And again, I, I really can't see voters as giving this a thumbs up. And yes, I want to be forced to take mass, mass transit. Uh, you'd think they'd want it to be a choice, but. You would think so. Yeah. You would think, but, but here's a great example. So, so I'm, I know you're aware of the freeway collapse in Philadelphia, right? One section of a freeway bridge collapsed because of a, a truck fire. And they had to take the other side out because it was damaged as well. So you've got two look like about 200 foot long sections of a freeway overpass that are going to take months and months to replace two sections of a freeway overpass. Now, when you talk about these planned cities, these 15 minute cities, people are gonna be forced out of personal cars and forced to use light rail, mainly is what it's going to be, at least what the planners say it's going to be. But we can't replace two sections of a freeway in less than three or four months, but we're supposedly going to be able to build tens of thousands of miles of, of new light rail in the United States and in Europe uh, between now and 2050 to, to reduce the number of cars, as the WEF proposed last week, from 1.4 billion on Earth right now to half a billion. In just 27 years, we're going to do all that. But yet, it, Two sections of a freeway takes takes four months. 
I, I, it's just extraordinary that anyone thinks any of this is possible to accomplish. It's just not. And so what's going to happen is we're going to be forced out of our personal automobiles and the light rail isn't going to exist. And we're going to have to ride buses or taxi cabs or some other mode of transportation. But you can believe that if, if they at all possible, these central planners are going to be forcing us out of our personal cars by, by any means necessary in the coming years. And no. um, it's going to be a great, great deal of deprivation happening uh, against the general population. On a related note, I just wanted to read a sentence, I think, written by you, quote, California's own high-speed rail boondoggle, originally proposed 27 years ago in 1996, has seen its budget blossom from $8 billion to over $130 billion, and it still hasn't managed to lay a single mile of rail, end quote. Not a mile. That, Not a single mile. That is amazing. That is amazing. They have cleared right-of-way and done some pre-construction, but they haven't laid a single rail. A single section of rail, not much less a mile, in all these years, and uh, you know that that was supposed to be a high-speed rail line that went from Los Angeles to San Francisco, and now it's been reduced to a hundred-mile stretch uh, from Bakersfield to um, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the other city in in the Central Valley in California, um, and they're not even they don't even have the ambition of completing a line. From Los Angeles to San Francisco. And yet you hear AOC talk about the Green New Deal. The Green New Deal envisions not get, just getting rid of most automobiles in the United States, but air travel as well. Okay. You're not going to be able to get on a plane and go places. You're going to have to ride a train. And, and, it, and it literally talks about tens of thousands of miles of new light rail and high-speed rail lines being built. That simply is not going to happen. It's it's a physical impossibility in this country today, and it's mainly because of all the environmental laws that require all the permitting and, and delays in permitting and environmental impact studies uh, that, that cause all the delays. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's a fantasy, and the real world doesn't conform itself to fantasies. I'm going to read one more sentence from you that I really enjoyed. Uh, quote, the former energy transition narrative of we will scale up renewables and EVs <laughs> and you won't even notice the difference in your daily lives has been transformed to we will scale everything down and you will just have to live with it with stunning speed during 2023. I love that. Yeah. And, that and that's the yeah. truth. I mean, it's really astonished even me. I started writing about this degrowth philosophy within the energy transition lobby a couple of years ago, I, I wrote a piece about a study that came out of Leeds University that uh, advocates for massive degrowth uh, and economic uh, growth uh, or massive economic degrowth and population reduction. And it all goes back to the Club of Rome's uh, study that was published in the mid 70s, uh, you know, that advocates force reduction of the global population to half a billion people. By, by 2000, they were talking about back then. But, you know, people, there are people, there's a whole subset within that climate change movement that, that reads that Club of Rome report like, like a playbook, okay? I mean, that's, that's their philosophical guide. And unfortunately, this year, during the course of this year, it really seems 
pretty obvious to me that that Malthusian thought process uh, is is really taking over the movement now, and then it really is shifting the entire narrative. When you have the president of the EU, the EU sponsoring a conference to plan for degrowth now, which happened in May, uh, you know that this is a very real takeover of that movement now, and and it's very frightening uh, because you know uh, the EU has tended to be a year or two ahead of the United States in, in doing these things. And this is a totally separate thing, but I just listened to a different podcast today about uh, in lots of places on earth, the um, people are not having enough kids uh, to cover replacement right. value. So how are we going to have lots of growth if the population is falling? Like in, uh, I forget, one of the Koreas that went down by a, a huge factor, number right. of kids and, and per uh, female went from six to one or something. It's yeah, a huge yeah. difference. Massive reductions, yeah. Yeah. So can we can we even have a growing economy if the population is uh, plunging? And that's going to be the challenge, Ryan. Yeah. I mean, we may not. Uh, Japan is is less than half of, of replacement birth rate. Even U.S. is under replacement yeah. at the right. moment, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, the United States is. Pretty much all of Europe is. So, I mean, we're going to have a natural, although I, I just saw a report yesterday that said, the expectation now among the quote experts is that the global population will continue to grow through about 2055 and peak at about 10.7 billion people before the global population begins to decline. So I, I guess in most parts of Asia and, and Africa and probably South America in developing nations that, that were still well above replacement birth rates. And so that accounts for that. And that's why most of the growth for demand of fossil fuels is is going to come from the developing nations because of that population growth. But yeah, in, in the Western society, we're going to have a hard time sustaining economic growth because of a falling population. And, and the hope among people who aren't Malthusians, the hope is that advancements in technology can make up for that, right? And so you need fewer workers in, in, to replace older generations of workers because technology can perform a lot of tasks that right now it can't perform. Uh, so, you know, I mean, that's been the thought process, but within the climate change community, there, you know, there's a that growing philosophy that, well, you know, we just need to let inter economic growth go and population climb, we need to do what we can to speed it up in order to reduce emissions because obviously a growing economy tends to create more carbon emissions. And, and so that's, that's becoming the dominant philosophy within the climate change movement. And it's really sped up a lot this year. You think there is some sort of a Malthusian idea that there's going to be too many people in Africa, for example, so they uh, can't have hydrocarbons like we do, that they have to only, yeah. uh, we have yeah. to block, <laughs> we have to block those projects so they only use wind and solar? Sure. I mean, that there's there's a, a concerted effort uh, at the WEF and the United Nations and, and these other international organizations to deny these developing nations access to natural gas and oil and coal, uh, which they want and desperately need to grow their own economies, right? Because you can't grow an economy on intermittent energy sources, and we don't have the technology at scale 
to back those technologies up and make turn them into 24-hour generators of electricity. We just don't. It doesn't exist. And or if it does exist, we haven't adopted it yet, right? But but yeah, I mean, uh, the president of Nigeria wrote a very eloquent letter to Antonio Guterres last year, uh, slamming him and his organization for try its efforts to deny his country access to these kinds of fuel uh, to grow their own economy, and and they're far from alone. And um, you know, it's it's the Western world. Uh, it's really mainly a Western world effort to deny developing nations access to that kind of fuel, and uh, it's causing a lot of conflict and, and hard feelings in the international community. Number six is from May 18th. Uh, I called it when a reserve morphs into a horde. Bloomberg Business issued a report about the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve and efforts by the Biden administration suddenly starting up again to refill it, in which Bloomberg referred to the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve as a hoard of oil. Uh, obviously, an effort to portray this strategic uh, asset that we have in the United States, this reserve of petroleum uh, that we keep in reserve on hand for national emergencies, real true national emergencies, in a negative light, and, and, and the media does this a lot. I singled out Bloomberg there. I singled out Bloomberg a lot because they do it a lot. Um, but really, it's, it's our entire legacy media establishment, just like they do with the Republican Party. They, they, when they're talking about fossil fuels, they try to find negative terms in which to characterize it. And this story at, at Bloomberg did that with the Petroleum Reserve. I, you know, we, we should all value the, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. It was created in the wake of the first Arab oil embargo. It's there, you know, if we get involved in another war or we have another cutoff of oil imports from other countries. Uh, the goal was to have a 90-day supply of our average daily imports of crude oil in that strategic reserve. And unfortunately, President Biden chose to draw it down to about half that last year for political purposes. And now suddenly... Finally, the administration seems to be at least starting a project to try to refill it. And, and so that's good news for all of us that Bloomberg tried to portray it in a negative light. And I thought that was kind of ridiculous. But that reserve was not designed to be drawn down just right before the elections, uh, right? Yeah, that, that wasn't uh, the purpose of it. You know, I mean, look, we, we had $5 gasoline prices last year for regular gas. Uh, in June, when, when the president, uh, you know, really started drawing it down very rapidly. Uh, he had announced the project in May, and it had kind of had a slow start before then. Well, you know, $5 gasoline is a gallon gas. It, you know, that's expensive, right? And it's inconvenient, and it's toughest on the poorest among us. But it's not a national emergency. Right. It's, it's certainly not a national emergency. And yeah, it was a completely improper use of the reserve and should have been condemned by everyone. Uh, but, you know, I mean, we just, we have a, a news media that's not really a news media anymore. And so, you know, it was just, uh, actually Biden was praised by many people in our legacy news media for doing that, which is just crazy to me. But where is that reserve kept? It's scattered all over? It's, it's scattered uh, in other regions, certain regions in the United States. A lot of it's in South Louisiana. 
and along the Texas Gulf Coast in, in salt domes underground, but it's in it's in underground caverns and that have been sealed off and that are appropriate for for storing liquids like that. And it has a total capacity of somewhere somewhere around uh, 800, 820 million barrels of oil. Uh, as of today, it's sitting at about 300, I think 352 million. So, you know, it's less than half of its total capacity right now, and it's the lowest level in, since uh, the early 1980s. Has there been long stretches in time when it's pretty full, I guess? Uh, it was pretty full just three or four years ago. President Trump made an effort to refill it when prices and during the price bust, for which, of course, he was criticized in the news media and by Democrats. Um, but, yeah, it was pretty full in 2018, 2019, 2020 time frame. Okay. About as full as it's ever been. And, and again, the goal is to have 90 days uh, supply of, of average daily imports, which right now are seven, eight million barrels a day. So, so 90 million barrels would, uh, I mean, 90 day supply would be 630 to 700 million barrels in the reserve. And so we're, you know, we're around half that right now. Was there a time when we imported a lot more than that or uh, in terms of yes, barrels? Yes, there was a time, uh, gosh, and, and just recently, really is recently as 2005 to 2008, we were, gosh, we were importing 12, 13 million barrels a day of crude oil, 65% of our daily needs because that was before the shale boom, before the discovery of the Eagle Ford shale and all the shale formations in the Permian Basin. Uh, you know, that really kicked off the 2008-9 time frame. And since then, we have really cut back on, on crude imports. So it's been a real benefit to the country. All right. And could we cut that number down even more? Uh, is there like a federal regulations that are kind of hindering oil production or, or not right now? Uh, you know, the main thing hindering production right now is is the falling price. I mean, we've lost 20% of our drilling rigs, certainly uh, this year, so far this year, the rig count has has diminished by 20%. It's going to diminish, I think, in the second half also because prices are fairly low for crude oil. Uh, the, the federal government, you know, the Biden administration has done its best to inhibit the industry's ability to get its business done, but it's a pretty flexible and nimble industry and continue to find ways to get its business done and drill more wells, we're gonna actually increase overall US production this year by about half a million barrels a day uh, during 2023. So, you know, it's a fairly healthy increase. Uh, if the price was still, you know, $80, $90 a barrel, they'd be drilling more and you'd be be having a, a quicker rise in, in domestic production, but still it's pretty healthy this year and, and the industry's in a in a pretty good spot despite the best efforts of the Biden administration. Number seven, um, this is one of my favorites. Again, this is a Bloomberg story. I, I, I called this one, Saving the Planet One Massive Blackout at a Time. Uh, another report from Bloomberg about boasting about how South Africa's frequent power blackouts, which have been caused by the, you know, the government there forcing an enormous uh, new capacity of intermittent energy, wind and solar, onto their power grid while restricting the ability to, to build new capacity fired by coal or natural gas or nuclear 
uh, is resulting in frequent blackouts that last hours and even days at a time across the country. And, and, and the focus of the Bloomberg story was to talk about how those blackouts, which are causing all sorts of human hardships in South Africa, are actually helping the country meet its emissions goals, uh, uh, its commitments under these international agreements, which is just amazing to me. I mean, people are, you know, going without the ability to heat their homes during winter because of these blackouts. And, and people are probably freezing to death or dying from the heat during the summertime. But, but the focus at Bloomberg is, well, yeah, but it's helping them admit, uh, meet their admission goals. So isn't that great? And I, I just, it, it, that mindset is, you know, I, I just don't, I can't understand that mindset, how that uh, even comes about. Uh, yeah, that's completely freaking insane in my mind. Do you think there's a lot of people at Bloomberg that are just uh, they're buying this? That sure it makes sense. All this pain right now is worth it because we're going to prevent bad weather oh, in yeah. 2050. They really believe this. Absolutely. Oh yes, absolutely. Not just at Bloomberg, but, yeah. but across the media. And I mean, look, that's what our kids are being taught in college, and have been for 20 years. That this this is all good. You know, the the more disruption, the better, as long as it reduces carbon emissions. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, and, and, you know, in these media operations, so many of the people that, and God bless them, I mean, you know, I, I, I love young people, but, but so much of the staff in these media outlets is, is pre, you know, recent college graduates who are just out of college, very idealistic people who are just learning the ways of the real world and don't really understand that so much of this is just rank propaganda that's that's not really possible to achieve and so you end up with reporting like this and and, and again I, I you know one of the main reasons i single bloomberg out i think i should say this is bloomberg generally does a pretty good job of reporting on energy really for considering it's a you know a mainstream legacy media outlet and so i read bloomberg a lot and and that's the main reason I come across so many stories from Bloomberg that that strike me as 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 frankly absurd. And I think that was just one of them. Uh, speaking of blackouts, I wanted to get your take on the Texas blackout uh, in the uh, winter of what twenty one. Uh, yeah. What did you think? What caused that? I know it's probably uh, is it complex well, to explain? Yeah. Well, you know, I've written a lot about it. I I was without power for four days at our house here in North Texas. Uh, Winter Storm Uri, uh, it, it was just an extraordinary event, but it was not an unprecedented event. And and there were a lot of things that went into causing the blackouts. But the main thing, the main malady on the system was that we didn't have any real capacity, backup, thermal generation capacity to come online in a major weather event like that. And uh, we we've had this free market system uh, here in Texas that was implemented 20 years ago when we started pouring wind, wind generation onto our grid and discouraging the building of new natural gas. And so we, we have resulted in a uh, not enough thermal generating capacity. We haven't built any new nuclear uh, since uh, the last nuclear plant that was opened was in the late 80s. So we haven't added any added any nuclear capacity, and and pretty much everything that's come onto the grid in recent years has been wind and solar, and so you get into a big freeze like that, 
the, the wind turbines froze up, the solar panels are covered with snow and ice, so they're not generating anything. A lot of gas pipelines froze up because they hadn't been properly winterized. A lot of generation plants froze up because they weren't properly winterized. And so it, it was this big combination of factors that were caused by, excuse me, failure of the market to send the proper market signals to build new thermal capacity and the failure by regulators to, to encourage and incentivize generators to, to weatherize their plants and operators to weatherize their pipelines. So it was just a big combination of factors where every generating source failed to some extent. And it was wrong for Governor Abbott to try to blame it all on renewables failing, just as it was wrong for the renewables community to try to blame it all on natural gas failing. Everything failed. It was a failure, uh, a complete failure of system management. And I think most of it now, two years later, after this last session, has now been corrected. And uh, there's even incentives on the books now to build new thermal capacity. And I think we'll get a substantial amount of new thermal capacity built in the next five to seven years. And that will really put our grid in a much firmer standing going forward. But uh, we, we have a winter storm like that in Texas. I know the media tried to claim it was an unprecedented event. It wasn't. We had a very similar event just in 2011. And that should have been the signal that, that you know, got our state officials on the ball to trying to correct these problems, and they didn't do it. And then URI happened, and 300 Texans lost their lives as a result. So it's a very tragic failure. Well, what do you think if the exact same weather comes back uh, next winter? It's not uh, already. They've made enough corrections so that it won't be nearly as bad, or what do you think? Yeah, I think we're in a, be a much better footing now. If you had another URI event next year, I think there's been enough weatherization of, of natural gas infrastructure and power generating facilities, uh, though not in the renewable space, but in coal and natural gas generation facilities that we would probably would not see the same kind of catastrophic blackouts that we saw just two years ago. So there's been a lot of progress made and, and uh, the people at ERCOT the new people at ERCOT, because the whole board was reconstituted, the new people at the Public Utilities Commission, the governor and the legislature all deserve credit for that. And, uh, you know, it's just that the previous 10 years, there were a lot of people that deserved a lot of blame that, uh, you know, really aren't going to have any consequences for their failure. Do you have any comment on, uh, wasn't Berkshire Hathaway had some sort of plan that they offered up to Texas saying yeah. here... Uh, what do you think? Did you like that plan, or I like that think? plan. Actually, I like that plan. I, you know, and and I was uh, actually advocated in several pieces that I wrote at Forbes about that. I, I think that was the right plan because it addressed the big remaining issue on the grid. The legislature dealt with most of the issues in the 2021 session because that big freeze happened just as their session was beginning, and they dealt with most of it. And there was language very similar to the Berkshire Hathaway plan in Senate Bill 6, which was passed by the Senate that year. But that specific language was stripped out in the House on the next to the last day of the session. And the Senate had no choice but to approve the House version, you know, because the session was ending. And so they didn't get that piece of it done. Uh, the language that passed this year, it, 
wasn't that similar to the Berkshire Hathaway plan, but it has a lot of the same elements, the same requirements that the plants that get built have on-site storage of natural gas, so they're not dependent on the transportation infrastructure, seven days of, of, of fuel storage on-site, and, and things like that, and proper weatherization, so that you're going to have the hope is that 10 gigawatts of, of new reserve capacity will get built and it will be essentially impervious to those kinds of weather situations, uh, which is really what you needed during URI and we didn't have. And that reserve capacity is real reserve capacity. It's not solar panels, is it? No, it's real no, natural it's real. gas generating. It's going to be natural gas generation capacity. In fact, the bill that was passed does not allow the tax credits uh, that are involved in it the incentives involved to be applied to wind or solar. And, uh, you know, which which makes sense because we're overloaded with it, with both now. We have we have wind projects in South Texas that, that, that have, you know, been built more than a year ago that can't get tied into the grid due to lack of transportation capacity. And uh, about 90% of our added capacity over the last two years has been solar. We have the fastest growing solar generating uh, industry in the country. And uh, you know, it's still just a small percentage of, of our total grid, but it's it's growing pretty rapidly. But we, you know, our grid managers have a hard time integrating all this new uh, renewable capacity into the grid. So, uh, but uh, the reserve capacity has to be natural gas because it has to be thermal because during major wind uh, weather events, is when wind and solar are most prone to fail. And uh, so you can't really, I mean, you can't rely on wind and solar in an emergency. All right. Uh, so there isn't a big push to put up a lot more wind facilities in Texas over the next 10 years? Do you think a lot Not more? Not from the government. Not from the state government. But yeah, it's getting built because of the federal incentives. I mean, the IRA has all these subsidies for it. So developers are going to build it uh, because it's profitable. And uh you know, the state can't stop them from building it. Um, but whether or not it, it's tied into the grid, you know, that's another question. Because one thing that most people are missing about the IRA, despite $369 billion in renewable subsidies, it doesn't really address transmission. <laughs> and so we, we already have a, a shortage, a growing shortage of transmission capacity in Texas. And there's no incentives in the IRA that's, that's incentivizing the building of more of it. And, uh, you know, the cost of new transmission goes up every year. We have a supply chain issue where the transformers that have to be a part of any transmission project, it, it's taking months, even years to get the high capacity transformers imported because they're all built overseas. And, uh, so we're we're going to run into we're going to have this big train wreck here in the next few years in our power grid, where transformers are concerned. You're not going to be able to build the transmission needed to tie all this new renewable capacity into the grid. So what good's it doing? So would they really build the wind facilities first and then try to figure yeah. out how to get the transmission done? They do it all the time. It happens okay. all the time, and not just in Texas. We have more of it than any other state, but it's happening all over the country and really all over the world. And but at the same time, we have a shortage of transformers of, on hand. Our inventory is very low. Uh, the people who operate our nationwide grid or uh, grids are very worried 
about, you know, uh, the impact that a major hurricane, you know, it, like we had a few years ago in Texas, that knocks out a, a, a whole bunch of your grid, you're not going to have the transformer inventory necessary to get all that back online rapidly like we were able to do. And, uh, you know, th this is a real problem that people, most people are not aware of and nobody in Washington wants to talk about, but it's, it's a big potential issue for us on our grid. May 15th, uh, Green New Deal, where the rubber hits the furnace. Uh, this was from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, a report that the Georgia Public Service Commission took a vote to classify burning tires, burning rubber tires, and power generation as a biofuel now, so that the biofuel generators could meet their targets. Uh, <laughs> We're generating power. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. I mean, I mean, burning tires is probably the dirty, literally the dirtiest activity you could engage in for the for the environment. Yet now it's classified as biofuel. In really? Georgia. Do they yeah, have some way? Awesome. Do they have some way to burn tires and uh, not uh, emit all the pollution? Do they have some way to capture it or not? Well, I mean, those plants have scrubbers on them because they're burning wood in them now. You know, but. Burning, you know, whether it can capture most of the particulate matter that comes from burning a tire, I, you know, that's a lot dirtier than burning wood pellets. So I, I just, I, I really sincerely doubt that they're able to capture uh, uh, a major portion of the particulate matter that's produced from burning a tire. Um, so that that was an, that's really one of the most egregious things I've ever seen. Really Excellent. amazing. Uh, and then number 10 was uh, when Germany lectures China about energy security, there was a, a UN-sponsored conference over in, uh, I think it was in Japan is where, where they held it in, in early May. And the German climate envoy, I just thought it was hilarious that Germany, the least energy secure country on the face of the earth over the last two years, was lecturing China that burning coal is not beneficial to the country's future energy security. And uh, <laughs> I just found that hilarious. So, so I, I included it. So uh, the Chinese are not uh, going to uh, be dissuaded, are they, by uh, this I don't argument? Think so. I, don't, I don't think China's envoy was, was prone to take the advice from, from Germany. I, the arrogance of the Germans just astonishes me. I, I, it's just amazing. They're the biggest disaster. They're, they're responsible for everything that's happening in Europe right now, even the war in Ukraine is partially their fault because they they had allowed themselves to become so dependent on Russia. And Putin thought he was going to win that war in two weeks because Germany and the rest of Europe had no energy security and they wouldn't be able to push back against Russia's invasion. So I, I you know, I just think the arrogance of the Germans is is the least warranted thing on the planet. One thing you wrote also, quote, the White House says it doesn't support banning natural gas stoves, but it still wants the authority to ban natural gas stoves just in case, end quote. Just in case, yeah. That's hilarious. Uh, and it's true. It's so true. You know, uh, you ask them about it, they say, nobody's looking to ban your gas stove. Then the next day, DOE will propose a, a new regulation highly restricting 50% of the gas stoves. You know, it, it just, it's, it's amazing, the dishonesty. Uh, one other tidbit I picked up from a, a, a different podcast of yours is that uh, wind turbines warm the ground and increase drought. Do you remember that one? In uh, Germany, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a an increasing school of thought uh, that the wind farms are, are so concentrated in Germany that they're one of the causes 
of the drought the country's having. And when you look at the maps, when you overlay the drought map on top of the map of where all the, the wind farms are located, it's like they're the same map. And so the heaviest parts of the drought are in the areas with the heaviest number of wind farms. And so there's there's a thought that that the the turbines, there's so many thousands of them now in Germany, that they're actually disrupting the natural creation of moisture and evaporation to create clouds. And, and it's it's uh, disrupting the natural process of creating rain. And uh, wow, if that's true, we got a real problem in Germany and in and that, Texas for that matter. And that has been one of the sales pitches, right? If you put up wind turbines somehow through a complex uh, causal chain, it'll prevent drought somehow, but yeah. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah. apparently the obvious is true. And, uh, you know, I don't think that's any accepted science yet. Uh, but but even the allegation of that is a, is a real source of trouble for the wind industry. Okay, any other points you'd like to make this time before we wrap up? Yeah, one thing. Everything, every energy-related problem that we have right, happening right now in the United States in the Western world is the result of government policy. If you think you can separate policy and politics from energy, you're mistaken. They're, they're fully integrated now. And every problem we have, you can trace it back to the implementation of an irrational government policy. And uh, we really need to start thinking about it in those terms and acting to correct it. All right. Very good. On that note, I'll sign off. But uh, thank you very much. I really enjoyed talking to you, David Blackman. Hey, thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Talk to you next time.